Shabbat Shalom, everyone. All right, here we go. We're going to continue on in our study. I think we're in our eighth, yeah, eighth week this week. And uh, last week we left off at verse 26, and so we're just going to get right into it. This is where we're going to pick it up. For you are all sons of Elohim through faith in Messiah Yeshua. We are all sons of the living God. You, you think about that statement for a second because uh, it shows you the power of faith. We were not always sons of God. There's a familiar status change. Something happens. This faith is the linchpin to this. To take us out, we were sons of the devil. We were sons of the world. We were men caught in deception. We were, we were people that believed lies, have no hope. But through faith, through that powerful act of faith that we put in the Messiah Yeshua, now all of a sudden we become sons of God. Now all of a sudden we're given hope. Now all of a sudden we have the truth. We have wisdom. We can have life. All of these beautiful things happen through the very same, the very same avenue by which Abraham accomplished it. Faith. And this is belief and concept. And so Paul could not stress this more. I mean, you go back and just reread it all together, you know, from the beginning to end, read Galatians. And Paul is trying to stress the emphasis of faith and the power of faith. It is powerful. It's life-changing, supernatural, where you change families immediately. That's an incredible thought. That's an incredible concept. Now he continues. He goes on and says this. For as many of you as were baptized into Mashiach have put on Mashiach. What does he mean? I mean, I, I, I want you to appreciate because what matters most here is what is Paul's intent? What is the mark that he's trying to hit? What is he conveying to us in this epistle or to, to the Galatians? Well, we understand the baptism part. Okay, we're baptized. We make the profession of faith. Therefore, we go through the baptism of his death and resurrection. Got that. But what does it really mean to put on Christ? Where is Paul coming from? Well, let's go back to Colossians 2.11. And we find this out. In him, and we're going to probably memorize this verse before we get out of this series. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, oh, by the circumcision of Mashiach, buried with him in baptism. See, the very same structure that Paul is, is laying out in, in to the Galatians, in, in regard to baptism, he now lays out here also to the Colossians, he is the, saying the same thing. To put on Christ, it is to have that circumcision, where we put that circumcision on. He's our husband of blood, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. He's same, same, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is exactly what he's conveying in this situation. When we're looking at verse 27, we have put on that circumcision. Putting on Christ is to put on that circumcision. All right, moving on. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And so you look at this. Paul is making the point that understand something. God does not make a distinction between circumcised and uncircumcised. Between the Jew and Gentile. When it comes to faith. 
Remember what the Torah says in Deuteronomy chapter 10. God is not a God who shows partiality. What do the prophets say? Go to Joel chapter 2 verse 32. All who call, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, slave, free, male, female, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is going to be saved. And this is the very point Paul is getting across to us. Having said that, there are a few things that I want to clarify when it comes to this statement. And the, really, the first thing I want to begin here is right here. For you are all echad in Messiah Yeshua. Echad. The first thing I want you to recognize about this statement is that it is the heart of God. I mean, if you, do you want to appreciate all these statements that are very controversial that the Apostle Paul is making to the Galatians? Do you want to appreciate that epistle? Do you want to appreciate the New Testament? Do you want to understand the New Covenant in a better light? Understand God's purpose, his will, his heart, his intent. To make two men... Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, to make them achad. That is his heart. And if you understand that, you can get your mind wrapped around why Paul is saying the things that he's saying. Why he stood so vehemently against his own brethren in regard to this issue. Let me paint the picture for you a little bit so that you can appreciate where I'm going. I want to take you to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we have the intercessory prayer. Yeshua, literally, before he's crucified, he prays to his father. Obviously, one of the most important prayers you will ever read. And such a unique look to see how Yeshua prays to the father. There's things we can learn from this. But what I want to point out in this prayer, he mentions something very specific that deals with our very topic today. To deal with this achadness, if, if I may coin the phrase. So let's go to John 17. And Yeshua says to his father, I do not pray for these alone. And what he means by that statement, he's referring to his Jewish apostles, his Jewish disciples, those who have called upon his name, his own brethren. And he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Think about that statement. It's prophetic because his apostles would go do what? They would actually take the gospel and go to preach. And it would be to the Jew first, and then it would be to the uncircumcised. The nations would receive the gospel. And according to Yeshua's prayer to his father, he's praying for them. He's praying for his Jewish own Jewish brethren according to the flesh. And he's praying for everyone that's going to believe the words that come out of their mouth. The testimony Yeshua has risen from the dead. Now that's amazing. That What's he praying for though? I mean, what's, where, where is he going? Well, we learn this, that they all may be one. This is the prayer. This is the heart of Yeshua. You think about this for a second. Whoever believes in him, Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, Yeshua's prayer, his heart, is that they be echad. How echad? He tells us, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Think about that. The whole concept of what Paul understands as he's expressing to the Galatians that they are not required to be circumcised in flesh. They have the circumcision of Mashiach upon them. 
He knows Yeshua's prayer and what Yeshua would do to make them achad, to make them so one that that relationship between the circumcised and uncircumcised was to emulate the very relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. An unbreakable relationship. A relationship so intimate it cannot be separated. This is what Paul knows. You wonder why he's got, he's got a fire lit into him? Because he knows what he's seeing is not emulating the relationship between the Father and the Son. But that's what's supposed to be happening. This is so powerful. Now, given the importance of this message, importance really understanding what Paul is trying to convey here uh, to, the, to the Galatians, I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 2. And, you know, I, I've mentioned this a, a little bit in, in a few of the uh, past messages, but we haven't formally gone here. And so what I need to do is I need to take you here today because there's a lot of information that is going to fill in gaps for you in regard to this very topic, in regard to what Paul is expressing uh, to the Galatians, just to literally help it come, if you will, uh, full circle. So what I want to do is I want to begin in verse 11. And this is what he says, Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. In other words, what Paul is saying is understand something. The Jews, those who are circumcised, have always made a distinction between them and everyone else. They've always, they've always had a line. We know what the Torah says, and we know what the prophet said. I mean, how many times do we got to go through and read? There is a separation everywhere you look. In fact, one of the things you'll notice is that when Israel was walking away from God, what were they doing? They were going to the uncircumcised. They were joining themselves to the uncircumcised. And when they repented, when they turned back to God, guess what they did? Read Nehemiah 13. They totally separated from the uncircumcised. They had nothing to do with them. They purged themselves of the uncircumcised. Very, very important. All right? He goes on and says in, in verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ. So the uncircumcised, all the Gentiles, you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You look at that word commonwealth, I've specially highlighted it for you, politeis. And what it refers to is citizenship. Citizenship. So what Paul is really saying is, you were not a part, you were not a citizen of Israel. Well, what do we know about citizenship? Well, with citizenship comes benefits, right? Comes benefits, there, there's protection, there's certain rights that are afforded to you. Very rights and, and protection and benefits that Paul goes on to explain in this very next statement when he says, you're strangers from the covenants of promise. So we go to look and we look at the Tanakh, what was given to the circumcised, what was given to the Jews, and there's these covenants and there's these promises throughout these pages. There's benefits, there's healings, there's all these amazing things that they get to receive that the Gentiles were totally separated from. They did not get to have or possess. This is exclusively for Israel, exclusively for the Jew. And then he ends off with this statement, having no hope and without God in the world. 
couldn't possibly employ stronger language. Basically, you were nothing. You had nothing. You didn't have the Messiah. You had nothing. Everything that was beautiful in the kingdom of Israel that was given directly by God to them, you couldn't touch it. You're, you're totally separate from us. You have no right to it. It is ours. And so he conveys this idea. But fortunately for these Ephesians, for all of us, and, and uh, for everyone else who's outside of Israel, uh, who's calling upon the name of Yeshua, there is good news. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once afar off have been brought near. How? By circumcision of the flesh. It's not what it says. By the blood of Christ. He is a husband of blood to us. Remember that. He is the husband of blood to us. This is how we're brought near. We put that circumcision on. For he himself is our shalom, who has made, oh, both echad, Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. This is what Christ has done. He's made them echad. And what did he do? He broke, he broke down. He tore it down, the middle wall of separation. Again, Look at the Torah, look at the prophets, look at the writings. There is a massive middle wall of separation between the Jew and the Gentile. Massive. I want to give you a literal example today. It's something I briefly alluded to earlier on in regard to Exodus 12. It's an excellent example, but as we go here, there is a plethora of information that we need to collect uh, in this process, because it's going to be very, very beneficial for today. So pay close attention as we go through this. In Exodus 12, verse 43, we read the following. And the Lord said to Moshe and Aharon, This is the ordinance of the Pesach. No foreigner shall eat it. Uh, pick up on some of these terms. You're going to have to put them on the shelf, because you're going to need them in a little bit here. No foreigner. In, in, in the Hebrew, it's nachar. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, obviously in the flesh, then he may eat it. A sojourner, okay, so we have foreigner, we got Nahar, we got Toshav sojourner, and a hired servant shall not eat it. And this is what we were talking about before. The Gentiles have no rights. They have no right to come and celebrate the Pesach, which interestingly enough is all about what? Deliverance. Freedom. And you think about that statement, the Gentiles have no right to celebrate deliverance. That's powerful. Absolutely none. Unless they get circumcised in the flesh. Then they can come in and celebrate this great deliverance, this great victory. Verse 48 Dropping down to this. And when a stranger, okay, so you look at this, a stranger. We got foreigner, we got sojourners, we got strangers. All these terms are being utilized to express Gentile. Being utilized to express uncircumcised. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near Pay close attention here because this is very, very important. See, when there's a desire from a Gentile, he desires deliverance. He desires this celebration. 
He wants to celebrate the blood of the lamb. He wants to celebrate victory. Okay? He is to come and get circumcised. And then he has the right to draw near. To draw near to the Lord. To draw near to Israel. To be with them. To draw near to the Passover. He's coming near and he will keep it. And then it goes on and says, And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. Absolutely amazing. All this information that we just picked up there. We got terms of the foreigner and the stranger uh, depicting the uncircumcised. We have this picture of if a Gentile who is uncircumcised wants to keep the Passover, then he can come near only after he is circumcised. Only after he has that desire in his heart. With that, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once afar off, oh, you have been brought near. Interesting. This is fascinating. This is not an accident that Paul accidentally utilized this language. He is very, very intentional here. And he's expressing to these uncircumcised Gentiles how they have been brought near. It is through the Messiah Yeshua. They were afar off, but now they've been brought near. How? By the blood of Messiah. The husband of blood. This is how we get this circumcision. For he himself is our peace who has made both Echad and has broken down the middle wall of separation. You think about this. If in fact the plan was simply to have all the Gentiles uh, who are coming into the faith to be circumcised at some point in their life, in the flesh, right? To be saved. There would be no tearing down of the middle wall. The middle wall would, re would, would still be up. Simply you have guys being thrown over, catapulted over, if you will. Getting circumcised in midair. Landing down. I'm totally being silly. Continuing on in uh, verse 15. This is what we read. Having abolished katargesis. It's important we pick up on some of these things. Katargesis in the Greek, it means exactly what is being expressed here. Abolished. Why is this important? Because it's important to know that, well, in Matthew 5, 17, we know that Christ did not come to destroy, abolish, annul the law. But there were things that were changed. And we're going to get into that in the coming weeks when we talk about the Old Covenant, what the Old Covenant really was, and then we talk about moving from there to the New Covenant. There are changes and here's one of the most significant changes that was made as we enter into this new covenant, what we're about to read. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the opposition, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. What did he just say? Do you understand? Abolishing the law of commandments contained in ordinances. See, context is very important. And today is a perfect example of that. What is at the forefront? What is the subject that Paul is dealing with? The middle wall of separation. The middle wall of separation. What do we know about the Torah? We just read it in Exodus 12. There were laws of commandments contained in ordinances that we just read in Exodus 12 that separated the stranger, the foreigner, 
the sojourner apart from Israel. What did he just come and abolish? Those commandments that separated them, that separated the circumcised from the uncircumcised. This is no question about that. This is really powerful what Paul is conveying. And he's very careful about how he articulates this. Moving to verse 16. That he might reconcile them both to God. See, the focus is circumcised and the uncircumcised. It's not the whole of the Torah. He didn't come to abolish the whole of the Torah. No, he came to deal with those commandments that separated the Jew from the Gentile. This is not that hard. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting death the enmity. The enmity between the Jew and Judge. Now dropping down, pay attention to what he's about to say. Now therefore, oh, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Isn't that amazing? Exactly what Exodus 12, these very statements that it, to define what an uncircumcised person is. Oh, he brings these very things to light of what he is dealing with. We're not to be called strangers and foreigners. Well, that's what the Torah identified these uncircumcised Gentiles before. Not anymore. Not through the Messiah, not through faith in him. Now that they have this circumcision of the heart, this spiritual circumcision where this anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh, they've been marked by God. Powerful. So no longer strangers or foreigners. Oh, but fellow citizens, you received this citizenship. You were cut off, but now you have citizenship within Israel with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Yeshua HaMashiach himself being the chief cornerstone. Let me take this a step further. After knowing what we know now, having gone through Exodus 12, everything else that we've covered, we're starting to connect a lot of dots here. I want to show you what this really looks like, the truth of the gospel when it's implemented. And this, these concepts actually come to light. And I want to do this by taking you to 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 5, we read this. We'll begin at verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Messiah, our Pesach, was sacrificed for us couple things about this passage, just to get into the backdrop. Number one, chapter five, specifically this chapter, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians because they have sin in the camp. There's sexual immorality happening in Corinth, and Paul is really, really concerned. Why? Pesach is coming. Paul wrote this epistle with Pesach in view. It's coming soon. We, he doesn't tell us how soon, how many days, but we know for certain he wrote this during with Pesach in mind. It hadn't happened yet. And he's concerned about the Corinthians and how they go to enter into this festival. And that's why we know he's utilizing these peculiar terms like leaven. Now, what you'll find is Paul doesn't typically employ these terms. We are going to see this in, in Galatians, but he employs them here. He employs them right here with Passover in mind because what do you do during Passover? You get the leaven out of your homes. All of Israel, all the Jews throughout the world have leaven in their houses until Passover comes. 
and they get it out. And so he shares this message. You better get the leaven out of your camp. Passover is coming. It's interesting. As you go to chapter 11, he actually further sends them this, this warning. It's frightening warning that you don't judge yourselves. You don't get your act together before you enter into this festival. You are going to die. This is why many sleep. This is why many are sick among you. You have not feared God. Amazing, right? All right. So moving on, and we're going to move on to verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Interesting. I want to be very clear. This is a direct commandment. For, and keep in mind, this epistle was written to Gentiles. These are the uncircumcised. And Paul is commanding them to keep the, fe the festival of Pesach. This is a direct commandment. But he's careful, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, which was plaguing Corinth, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In fact, I could take this a step further. If you go back to 11, it all ties in together here, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that right now. What I want you to focus on, I want you to understand my point, what I'm getting at here. Here you have something amazing. Here you have Paul talking to Gentiles, the uncircumcised, telling them to get sin out of the camp, telling them to keep the Passover. What else do we know that he told them? Well, let's go back there. We read this a couple weeks ago. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. You got that? Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Amazing. When you step back and look at what just happened, knowing what we just read in Exodus 12, this is mind-blowing. Paul just is talking to the uncircumcised, told them, keep the feast, and in the same breath told them, don't you dare become circumcised if you came into the faith uncircumcised. How crazy is that? Think about that statement. Think about what he's actually telling these Corinthians. That's an amazing thing. And I mean, when I'm talking circumcision, I'm talking according to the flesh. But that's not all. He's not done yet. He adds something else that is really amazing here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called... In the Lord, while a slave, is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is, a slave, who he is called while free is Christ's slave. Listen to this statement. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. You were bought at a price. Does that ring any bells? Because we just read that in Exodus 12, 43. And the Lord said to Moshe and Aharon, this is the ordinance of the Pesach. No foreigner shall eat it, but every manservant who is bought for money. When you have circumcised and then he, isn't that amazing? Do you think it's a coincidence? Paul just brings this terminology. When he's talking to the uncircumcised, he's talking about them, telling them to keep the Passover. And then he mentions, oh, by the way, you were bought at a price. The very thing that this passage depicts in Exodus 12. Whoever is bought for money. And it's interesting, every man's servant. And what does Paul say? 
specifically, do not become slaves of men. Now, this is absolutely amazing. When you're considering what Paul is doing, whether or not in, in, in uh, how he understands circumcision, uncircumcision, the uncircumcised coming into Israel and what that looks like, he lays out such a clear trail for us to understand that there, there's no absolute no question about it. There was never a thought in Paul's mind. He would never command Gentiles, uncircumcised, to keep the Passover if, in fact, Paul believed the only way that they can be saved is keeping being circumcised in the flesh. He would never allow that to happen. But he understands what kind of circumcision they have received. With that said, we're going to go back now because we're not done with this passage. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. Now, unfortunately, uh, we have to deal with this passage in a whole nother light because of certain individuals coming on the scene and really uh, taking this to the extreme. And what I mean by extreme, I mean the dangerous extreme, taking this statement to places that Paul never intended it to go. And what do I mean? Well, for example... There is neither male nor female. I can tell you this right now. And you can go check it out for yourselves. The transgender community, proponents of the transgender community are using Galatians 3.28 today. They're going out and giving speeches and talks and lectures, writing blogs. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the Christians to support the agenda to support the ideology of transgenderism because they'll go to Galatians 3.28 and see, see in Christ, which is all about love, there isn't male or female. So if you're a male and you feel like a woman, it's okay. Christ supports that. Christ is love. This is what it's all about. This is what the apostle Paul said. If you feel like a woman, you want to become a man, there's neither male nor female. It's perfectly fine. In Christ, it's gender neutral. This is happening right now. I'm not making this up. And so we have, the devil is very, very crafty. And as I said before, and I'll say it again, he loves to use scripture. You know why? He wants the support of the church to run his gamut, to run his deception. He wants the support of the church. And this is a very sad thing, but I want to be clear on something. Paul is not saying that biological classifications disappear with the coming of Christ, that's not what he is saying. In fact, you can just look at the immediate context and figure out, well, that, that doesn't exactly work. Classifications don't just disappear, right? You look at this. There's neither slave nor free. If classifications just magically disappeared, why does Paul deal with this very thing in Ephesians 6, 5? Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, would he not rather say, bond servants, guess what? In Christ, you don't have the status of a bond servant. You're completely free. Don't worry about it. No. He addresses their physical classification, where they're at. You're a bond servant. Be obedient to your masters. He doesn't just stop there. Then he deals with the free, the masters. And masters, you better watch out, for you also have a master in heaven. Do you see what I'm saying here? These, class, these physical classifications that Paul is talking about, they don't just disappear. I want to deal with this one. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Does that mean that 
there are no Jews after the coming of Christ. There really genetically, there are no Jews left. Or that maybe, maybe them being physically Jewish is irrelevant. I mean, you can see where this conversation can go really quickly. It's scary, right? You start thinking about replacement theology. You see, because replacement theology is one of the, one of the, one of the fundamental pillars of replacement theology is right here, Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. And the conversations I've had with Christians, oh, it doesn't matter that, you know, the Jews, it doesn't really matter. There is no Jew anymore, right? There's no Jew, there's no Gentile. This is what Paul said. Christians understand this. This is, or this is how many Christians have understood this passage. Really doesn't matter that there are physical Jews on the earth. It's completely irrelevant. I'm going to tell you that is not true. It's not true at all. And we need to be very, very careful in this arena. And very, very careful not to take Paul's words completely out of context. Let me offer you a few passages just to build on this, to help you understand this. In Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the prophet of circumcision? He is explicitly dealing with the flesh here. Okay? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now, this is an amazing statement. Paul's saying, look at the Jew according to the, the, the flesh. What advantage do they have? And all he does, he points back to Mount Sinai. Our fathers were at the mountain receiving the holy word of God, literally seeing tongues of fire come out. These tongues of fire, as the rabbis record, being preached in 70 different languages. This is the people of God. This is where Israel was while the Gentiles were at the altar of demons. I call that significant. I call being Jewish very significant, very relevant in the flesh. All right, let me go back to Romans 9. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Mashiach for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He's just simply looking at his brothers in the flesh. They are fellow Jews who are Israelites. To whom... Listen to this. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the Torah, the service of God, and the promises. Again, everything that mattered was given to the physical descendants of Abraham. Whether or not they follow it, God gave them free will. That's another matter. But what Paul does is he shows the relevance of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very powerful. Of whom, and it gets better, of whom are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, the 12 tribes that were born out of Jacob. And from whom, according to the flesh, Mashiach came. There's the crescendo. Christ himself came through this lineage of Jewish people. Born among his brothers. And that was the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. Behold, I will raise up for you a prophet like you among your brethren. It's very significant, right? You can't read something like this and, and say being Jewish is, you know, and physical descendants are, are, it doesn't matter. You just can't. As you start to build this case, as you start to look at how Paul understood it, uh, going to Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Mashiach. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Oh, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. See, these physical classifications don't evaporate. When Paul says there is neither Jew, there is neither Gentile, they don't just evaporate. 
There's still physical descendants, physical Jews that are real, that still exist, and they're to be noted. Right? What does uh, Yeshua say to the woman at the well, the Samaritan? You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. Salvation is of the Jews. You think about that statement, you look at it in the Greek, the preposition is ek, it means out from. Salvation is out from the Jews. See, remember that salvation did come from them, according to the flesh. You go and Matthew records this genealogy. Luke records the genealogy. My point is, it's very significant. I want to give you a physical, a practical example of what I mean in all of this. And I think this is really going to help bring this full circle for you. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. Okay, so this is a command, very simple, straightforward command in the Torah. The Jewish people, Hebrews, are not allowed to charge their brothers interest. It's forbidden. In fact, read the book of Nehemiah again, and what you will find is they did not always abide by that. And what happened? Nehemiah rebuked him, and he came in hard because they were charging their brother's interest, and it's forbidden. The Torah absolutely forbids such a thing. It's abominable in the sight of God, all right? But he's not done. The passage isn't done. To a foreigner, you may charge interest, but to your brother, you shall not charge interest. That the Lord your God may bless you, and all which you set your hand in the land in which you're entering into possess. See, your blessing rests upon, you better get this right. But here's the thing. Isn't it interesting? The Jew can charge interest to the Gentile, to the uncircumcised. He is perfectly permissible. That is, there's nothing against Torah on that. It's totally lawful. Now, here's where I'm going with this. And so we can, we can appreciate this in the light of even the new covenant and the light of what I'm trying to get across here. For you Gentiles that have been grafted into the tree of Israel, when you come in, you are prohibited from charging the Jewish people interest. And I am not just talking about Jewish believers who are part of the body of Christ, yes. But now... As you become a believer in Yeshua, you're grafted into Israel. Even those Jews, you will identify them. If they are Jews, you step back and go, well, Taurus prohibits me from charging them interest. It does. And I, I would tell you to heed this warning very carefully that you would never breach that. You would never cross that line of charging a Jew interest because it's against the Torah. So you've come into the family. You would never do this. And regardless if that Jew is following Yeshua or not, you recognize the reality. That's on his own head. But you recognize the Torah. So like I said, this physical status, it doesn't just disappear. Now here's the interesting thing about it. This is, this is the miracle of it all. An uncircumcised person who calls, or even a Gentile who is circumcised, like myself, as, as a youth I was, it's irrelevant, but you're Gentile, you're not a physical descendant, coming in to Israel. Here's the thing, Jewish believers should never charge you interest because you are now a brother. You are now as a native of the land. Does this make sense? As you start to go through this, it's powerful. All right, so 
Getting back to Galatians 3.28, when we look at this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Messiah Yeshua. Understand, all Paul is conveying here is simply saying the Lord doesn't show partiality when it comes to the faith. doesn't matter if you're male or female. doesn't matter what status or class you belong to. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they're going to be saved. And that is a promise. That is awesome. Whether you're in jail, you've been convicted of a crime. You know, we have a jail ministry. We're there. We send people into the jails to bring them hope. Doesn't matter their circumstances. They can't be bound in the faith. The Lord is forgiving. Uh, and, and so this is looking at this in Acts 15. I just want to bring this back to the table. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, meaning the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts. They were getting circumcised of the heart, purifying their hearts by faith. Moving on in Galatians, we're going to break into chapter 4. We don't got much left here, but we're going to try to get as much as we can in. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave. Though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Now, you got to keep in, you know, sometimes in these studies, you, you tend to, you get into one verse and you spend an entire day like we almost did today. You can lose sight of the passage, the bigger passage, because all Paul is doing here is grabbing that concept that we just covered in chapter three of the pedagogue, right? Where the children were kept under guard by the law. He's bringing that concept back to the table, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. And therefore, we are no longer under a tutor, Paul goes on to say in in chapter 3. We're no longer under this pedagogue. He is bringing this discussion back to the table. And this is important because he's going to go on to express what he means by this. He is going to temper this. This, in a way, if you will, is his anchor statement to it. All right? So we're going on, moving on. Verse 3. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under, oh, under the elements of the world. What does he mean here? What does it mean to be bondage under the elements of the world? Sin, right? We were in bondage to sin. So define these terms as we continue. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, which is all he's saying is is that Yeshua was born into a broken, into a fallen and corrupt world, a world that was cursed. They were cursed because the law was cursing them for all have fallen short of the glory of God to redeem those who were what? Under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Isn't this interesting? Because we hear he utilizes the term under the elements of the world. But when you get down to here, it's under the law. Do you remember Romans 6 and 7? Do you remember that reality of how Paul uses the term sin, right? And law synonymously to the point it sounds like law is sin and sin is law. Then he has to, as he gets to chapter 7, verse 7, he actually say, is the law sin? Certainly not. Because he understands what he's saying. And how do we understand that relationship? Right? You go back to 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is the law. There is a relationship between sin and law. 
Sin in and of itself has no power. It needs the law to condemn, right? Paul is sharing the very same thing here. He's expressing the very same thing that he did in Romans. He's doing here. One way he's saying under the sin, under the elements of the world. Another time he says under the law. He's very, very consistent in his approach. And this is that, that anchor statement so that you understand what he means about being under a pedagogue, about it being there until the time, until the time of what? Grace and freedom and liberty, forgiveness of sins. Moving on. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Messiah Yeshua. Now, this passage shows that, you know, Gentiles who believe in Yeshua, they receive full membership status. They're to be considered family. They're going to be considered echad with the Jew, native of the land. And we get this, especially in this term that we see uh, being used here in the Greek. And I'll put this up for you. It's kleronymous. Kleronymous, it means what we see here, but there's a little more. It means heir and inheritor by implication, a possessor, a sharer of a lot. You think about what's really being expressed here. Think about what's being expressed when you, in the light of what was expressed to Israel. And what do I mean? Well, let's go back to Numbers 26.55. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit. Heir is the very root word of inherit. That's the whole concept, right? They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. That's amazing when you look at this in light of a prophecy, if you will, with deep prophetic undertones in the book of Ezekiel, which he shows what would happen, which he really, really prophetically shows what Paul is talking about in Galatians. Ezekiel 47, 22, it shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and, oh, interesting, for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. Now get this. They shall be to you as native born. Very, very unique passage. So you don't typically read this unless it, there's circumcision involved, right? It was as we read in Exodus 12. This is a unique passage. There's a lot of prophetic undertones. But they're going to be as native born. These strangers among the children of Israel. Oh, and they shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. Prophetic of what would happen to the entire world, to all those Gentiles that would call on the Messiah Yeshua, being grafted into Israel, now receiving an inheritance and being that heir, having that heir, that, that heir uh, through faith in Messiah Yeshua. 